Coming up on this episode, we welcome Anna Marie and Elliot McLemore to discuss their first collaboration, the book Venom and Bow. Welcome to episode 423 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of queer romance fiction. I'm Jeff, and with me as always is my co-host and husband, Will. Hello, Rainbow Romance Reader. It is so great to have you back with us for another Super Summer bonus episode. We're going to get right into this interview that was recorded live on May 16th at Capitol Books right here in our hometown of Sacramento. Anna Marie and Elliot McLemore had their launch party for the YA fantasy Venom and Val there, and we thank them and Capitol Books for letting us be part of the celebration. It was such a blast talking to these two and finding out about this incredible book. You'll hear about how this went from a book Anna Marie was plotting to one they ended up writing with Elliot. There are some delightful stories about how they worked out the setting and the scenes and what it was like for this married couple to become creative collaborators. Plus, they read the first two chapters, and I even sneak a fanboy moment in before we're done. So I am thrilled to get to interview Anna Marie and Elliot McLemore. I have been a fan of Anna Marie's for quite some time. I have read Venom and Vow. It is absolutely amazing. For those who don't know, Anna Marie has written so many books and picked up so many award nominations. There's a William C. Morris Debut Award finalist. There's a Time Magazine 100 Best Fantasy Novels. There's Stonewall Honor Book. There's National Book Awards. Anna Marie knows how to write a book. (laughs) Elliot, this is his first fiction. Congratulations. Thank you. I love your bio because it says, you, you came from the mountains and loved trees, and you romped in dresses, fought with plastic swords, and dreamed up your first stories. And then you went on to academic and professional writing and research, so it's wonderful to have you back on the fiction side. <laughs> to kick us off, let's start with the most basic question. What is Venom and Vow about? Okay, I'm going to see if I can remember the pitch <laughs> from the announcement, because it has excited me ever since. Let's see if I can do the elevator pitch or if I'm going to have to take the stairs. Okay, so... <laughs> Venom and Vow is about a transgender prince who is doubling for his brother, a bigender lady-in-waiting slash boy assassin. And the two of them, because of their dual identities, don't realize that they are falling for each other while simultaneously trying to destroy each other. Yes. Well done. Thank you. I did it. (laughs) That's going to be the hardest question of the night. (gasps) We'll try to keep it that way. (laughs) So now that we know that little bit, I'd love for you to read a little bit for us so we could get a little flavor of what we're going to talk about. I believe this is our first reading from this book. It is. Chapter one, Valencia. Of all the things my father taught me, this is the one most likely to keep me alive tonight. Your hair, mija, can always hold more knives than you think. I give my hair another twist and shove in two more of the tiny blades I've spent half my life learning to throw. Tonight, I'll be getting close enough to Adair's borders to taste the salt in the air. Whenever you get close to Adair, you can never have too many knives. I learned that the hard way. My father told me not to go out there that night, just like he'd probably tell me to stay at El Palacio right now. But my father had to know I'd follow him. He had to know that the best way to get me to do something was to forbid me to do it. And besides, he needed me. I've always been my father's mano derecha, his right-hand boy or girl or whoever I am at the moment. Whoever I need to be to sneak around somewhere unnoticed or slip into a room I'm not supposed to be in. 
I can't count how many times I've showed up in disguise before he even knew he needed me to go get a look at some dignitary's correspondence or a visiting prince's books. And that night, I dressed the part. I put on the most spectacular outfit I had, a deep green gown refined enough to make me look older, a velvet cape stitched with so many leaves of gold, red, and amber fabric that I looked like I was wearing autumn. My best cane, I wear at this wood set with fire opals, hair pinned back exactly like the most elegant ladies. All the best to impersonate someone important enough to be at a negotiation between two enemy kingdoms. The moment I got to the edge of the woods, I saw the Adair boy. Boy? Man? I still don't know. He didn't see me, but I watched him. I watched everyone. There was nothing all that notable about him. Dark hair, gray coat, brown trousers. He had a staff with him, a nice one. Even from that distance, I could see the heft and the metalwork. And I could tell from the way he was holding it that he used it to help his walking, similar to how I use my own baston. There was something about the way he was looking around. Not like he was looking for something or someone, more like he was checking, which instantly made me think he was supposed to be an inconspicuous guard. Someone I'd need to avoid as I went deeper in, where half our court and half of Adair's had gathered. I should have already had a knife out. I know that now, but I didn't. I was looking into the trees to plan my route, how best I could casually swan into the proceedings like a fashionably late duquesa. But I didn't see him do it. But when that, that light came flashing hard as sun off water and blue as moonlight through ice, I looked back at him and I saw. He was holding that staff with both hands, driving it into the ground, as if he was putting all his weight and strength into keeping it there. He stared into the light like he was calling it by name, and I knew I could tell he was the one doing this. I reached to pull out a knife. Whatever he was doing, I knew that if I got a blade in his arm, I could probably throw his concentration enough to stop him. But I hadn't woven them into my hair that night. I'd rushed out with them tucked into my boots, but hadn't taken the time to slip them into my braid. If I had, I might have been fast enough. The force following that light came hard as thunder after lightning. It went through me and knocked me to the ground. The leaves of cloth on my cape blew into a whirl. The force of that light was as hard as a current. Even with the help of my cane, I couldn't get up, not until everything had settled and gone quiet. By then, he was gone. What that boy did to the woods that night took our king and queen. It took my father. And every night since then, I've known what we all should have known. There's no negotiating with a dare. All we can do is win. I don't blame the boy for everything. It's almost certain that he was acting under orders. Still, if I ever see him again, he's dead. I slip one more knife into my hair. The mistake I made that night, I'll never make it again. Chapter 2. Cade. I just couldn't stay away from the edges that night. I hardly ever can. Know where your lines are. See the maps in your mind, laid out over the castle, over the battlefield, over the land, always. If you lose track of those lines, they'll be in control and not you. My mother's voice, my queen's voice, as I've heard it my whole life, pulled me to the borders of our land. That night, it pulled me to her, to my father, to the Elian and Rulin family and their advisors. Another negotiation, this time with its venue in the most disputed zone of the forest between Adair and Eliana. 
I tried to spot one of our guards in the dark, or one of our horses. I have even settled for some of the Elianan contingent. Their bright colors made them stand out in the moonlight. At first, all I could see were trees and some vague movement between them. A loud crack thundered under my feet, and a burst of light, brighter and bluer than sheet lightning, blasted out from the forest, nearly knocking me down. I had to hold Fallon with both hands to keep steady. I felt him gripping the ground for me, keeping me upright like he does when I'm on the battlefield and about to lose my balance. Whatever you do, don't let them take you to the ground. My mother again, teaching me to be a warrior like her. I searched for her in the burst of light, trying to spot her or anyone close to her, but it was far too bright and pushed at me with far too much force. As I squinted against the light, I saw a swirl of movement in red and orange, waving like the flames of a bonfire. I focused my gaze as closely as I could. I made out the form of a person crouching, holding a staff far more delicate and ornate than Fallon. The top of the staff glinted with what looked like small flames, and I was certain that what I thought was a bonfire was actually their cloak. I'd seen enchanters at work before, but nothing like this. One hand extended to keep their balance, the other held the staff, driving it into the ground, making the flames at the top pulse even brighter. I knew better than to trifle with enchanters and their staffs. The staff my mother carried had been passed down from queen to queen for generations. Its power was unpredictable even to its wielder. It had surprised my mother more than once. The light intensified again like the roots of all the trees nearby were sending veins of lightning out under our feet. The enchanter lift their, lifted their head, dark eyes wide and fixed on the center of the light. I could see her deep red lips and long tendrils of thick black hair escaping from a twist I recognized as one popular in the Elianan court. I memorized her face that night, and I've been looking for it ever since. Absolutely wonderful. I think we saw... Yeah. We learned so much about Kate and Valencia right there in those first like five pages and two simple chapters. Where did Kate and Valencia, like, what were their inspirations? Where did they come from for you as you developed the book? You want to get right into the theater nerd nerdness? Yes. Okay. Excellent. I love that there's theater nerdness. <laughs> there, there, yes, there is bound to be theater nerdness when there is us. So, yeah, it, for people familiar with musicals, they tend to identify an A couple and a B couple. And the A couple is, you know, the one that most of the story revolves around. But there's usually like a secondary romantic pairing. We wanted to focus on what would normally be the B couple, right? So these folks are, are not the main prince and princess people. They're, they're the other ones. And we wanted them to be the center of the story instead. So that was part of the inspiration was to, to have that couple be the central characters. And they're often like, they're, they're often the ones that are the comic relief. They're often the ones that are, that are arguing with each other. So that whole, and I, that whole A couple, B couple thing, which I didn't really realize until Elliot mentioned it partway through the process, I thought that's exactly what we're doing. It, it was also, it ended up being important from an identity standpoint because you have the B couple that's not usually the center of the story. And you also have these identities that aren't usually the center of the story. You have, you have these characters who are both trans. One is, one is a trans guy. One is non-binary by gender. You have one character who's Latin. You have two characters who have disabilities, who, who use canes. So the kind of the kind of like musical theater nerd part of it that we were connecting with also had this connection to what we wanted to do with identity, like these characters that share our identities and that we wanted to be at the center of, of the story. I'm glad you kind of listed everything that is a part of them. They're trans. They're both have different gender identities. They're both disabled 
in some similar ways even. What made all of that part of it? And then I'm fascinated by how you made this all so cohesive because they're very similar in some ways. And yet they're very opposite too. Like, and the push and pull that develops between them, even as they're figuring out those similarities, it it's fascinating to me how you must have gone through to kind of plot this out to determine what to reveal when and how that would impact them. Well, the the reveals were definitely helped by his favorite word, spreadsheet. Yeah, spreadsheet. I love that. We also, we, I have to mention this, we have the, the lovely lady that we dedicated the book to, Dana Bryant, who keeps spreadsheets for her video games as she's playing them. So as you can tell, we, we have, we have like kindred spirits of, of spreadsheets around us. But he, he was really, really just meticulous about keeping, like keeping the spreadsheets while I was sort of like, oh, we'll figure it out as we go. And he's like, no, we can't we can't figure it out as we go. They actually need to, we need to know what they know or we're gonna be on draft seven and be fixing this. So this this kind of combination of like the, the mathematical side of it and the artistic side of it was something that was, that's I think is, is a big part of fantasy, especially with, with the kind of sprawling worlds and casts like this. And it's not just these characters who are complicated You've given them alter egos, too, like the alternate identities that they have and the identities that they carry. It's very Shakespearean in some ways, like the deception and the miscommunication and the I'm not who you think I am. So I'm glad to hear you used a spreadsheet because otherwise you might go a little insane (laughs) trying to keep it all, you know, in the right spot. How much of this ended up in like first drafts and how did it develop over time? How fully formed were they? Because they are so complex. I wish the folks who are listening could see them because they're both just making these great grinning faces at each other as I ask these questions. We, we redrafted a lot. We changed many things because we'd, we'd keep having these great ideas and like be very apologetic about it, right? Like one of us would go to the other one and be like, so I have this great idea, but everything we just wrote, we're going to have to rewrite it all. So we did that a few times. <laughs> And the th- the thing is, like they would, it would be the wonderful thing is that it would be worth it. Be like, oh yeah, that is better. We should do that. Darn it! Like, so we would just we would be doing these like normal normal like household things, normal li- life things, and the other one would sort of burst in and be like, I know what needs to happen in this chapter. I'm so sorry because we're gonna have to. No, I know what you're gonna say. We have to change everything before. Yeah, okay. But that's that's part of that's part of the magic, I think, of finding the story. Because when you get there, when you get to where it's supposed to be, it's how, of course, how did we think it was going to be anything else? And I feel that way as a reader too, reading books and then hearing about how authors do draft after draft, and I think like, of course, this was how the story is supposed to be. How many drafts were there? Uh, I don't know. Um, I, know. Do I we, definitely lost count. Do we um, count in decimals? Because there were those ones where we would sort of like backtrack and think like, okay, what do we what do we need to change to get to this this point? So officially, there were probably like five of them, but then you have a lot of like partial drafts in between. For the scope of what happens in this book, that's not bad actually. <laughs> Putting my writer hat on for a moment. 
what came first here? These amazing characters or the amazing adventure? Because there is this kind of enemies to lovers, opposites attract, but yet similarities attract story set against this, we need to fix the kingdom kind of aspect as well. Where did it start? I think it started, well, it started a little bit with the concept of it. This this started as a very, very, very loose Sleeping Beauty reimagining. And these characters in mind and the, the way that Elliot came onto this novel is, I, I hate when I say this because I sound like such a diva when I say this, but I've, it sounds like I prefer to work alone, but I don't, co- this is my second co- co-written novel. My first one was with Taylor K. Mejia, Miss Meteor in 2020. I don't co-write a novel unless, unless we're doing something that neither of us could do alone. So I had this idea for these characters and I thought, I can't write, I can't write Cade the, na- the way he needs to be written. Do you know who I think could? <laughs> so after after a fair bit of convincing, I thought I kind of was telling him like this is this is who I think this character was. And when I knew that I had him, when he started to like run with Kate and be like, no, I think it's I think this is what it is. I think this is in his character history. I think this is his relationship with his mother. I'm like, I have you. You're gonna write this guy. You don't know it yet, but you're going to. Yes. It was, so that was what pulled you in there. Were you, was you trepidatious at all to undertake? I mean, this is your, not just first collaboration for you, but your first published fiction work too. Yes. From, you know, creating whatever stories you'd done, you know, before. And you got brought into this. What went through your head when it's like, am I really doing this? Oh, I was very terrified. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and surprised that, you know, the, the feedback early on from our mutual editor now was, you know, encouraging and was, you know, this part is actually working. I was, I was surprised and pleased. (laughs) And, you know, from that point on, I I got more excited about it and got more into it. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's a little intimidating to work on a first project with someone who is so experienced and talented and with whom I have lived for so long, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm flattered that you think that considering you saw my early drafts of things. I, I thought they were still pretty good, the early ones. Did you provide some early feedback on those, or was it just like reading to go, uh-huh, that works? Or were you actually providing you know, feedback on what was there? I feel like I uh, earlier on with some earlier things, I feel like I was a bit more involved in, in doing feedback. There came a point where everything was going so quickly that I sort of couldn't keep up anymore. It was all, it was all just like... I don't know, on, on the bullet train to wherever, awesomeness. So, yeah. But early on, I, I got to read some things, and I got to read some things that became other things later. So that was really exciting. Things that became other things, the story of drafting and revising. Right? Yes. <laughs> From the perspective of this book, that it sounds like you wrote Valencia and you wrote Cade, was it a constant just back and forth in the chapters? Pretty much. I mean, I, I, I don't know how... I, I, I marvel at authors who, you know, share points of view or have one point of view between more than one author. I can't imagine because, you know, we had these two rather distinct characters and points of view and, and voices. So, you know, we didn't really have to worry about trying to, like, match each other. I can't can't imagine attempting to do that. But, yeah, this, I, I think it it really worked. We did go back and forth a lot, and it was, we had to kind of keep pace with each other. It was difficult to get like too far ahead or fall too far behind because we had to kind of keep comparing notes as we went. Yeah, 
yeah, you can sort of have the rough idea of what happens in each chapter and then look at look at what each other has done and say like, oh, okay, I I took this longer than I had to. I didn't need to go this far. Or wait, we have a little bit of a time gap here. So smoothing those kinds of things out and editing each other. And like like Elliot said, I know I know authors who do the work of like doing one voice together. And it's this this art form, form that I, I marvel at because with both collaborations, I've done both co-authorings. It's been, you're writing one voice, I'm writing another voice, we edit, we edit each other. Yeah, the authors who tell me when I interview them that they could write and stop midway in a chapter and the other author come in and just pick up and go, not even you know switching voice. I'm like, how? How does that make a cohesive book? And good for you for making it that way. <laughs> when it came to the plot, were you plotting together? Or was was all the spreadsheet of the characters, was there a spreadsheet of like the plot too? Because this is very complicated. Like I can't, it would be impressive to me if it was like, oh yeah, we just made that up as we went. <laughs> And it all turned out so well. No, we, we we used the thing. The thing. Wow, that was specific. There's like a, a chart you can you can use yeah, to plot stuff. We, we've used a couple of them. Yeah. And you put sticky notes on it. Uh-huh. And then you move them around for like when you change when stuff happens. But yeah, that was it was very handy to have like the big old chart with the sticky notes on it. It was great. Sorry, I'm laughing because we did that. We did that on the wall with like paper and then we put sticky notes on it. And the other thing we did on the wall with a big piece of paper. So there's this beautiful map that our publisher has put in into this book, which I'm so excited about because I've never had a I've never had a map in a book. I love this thing. I want to I want to like make a huge version of it and put it on our wall. So speaking of walls, we had the piece of paper up and like precious debut author that he is because our publisher is saying if you could sort of start to like plot out where things are draw things like it'll give us an idea when we give it to the artist so wonderful debut author that he is he's carefully doing like the monastery and the castle and everything and I'm over here like losing it a little bit as we all are during the pandemic and I'm drawing like Pusheen and like and like Molang and like a bird over here so I eventually got with the program and I was like okay this is where everything is but his side was just this work of art and mine was just this collection of like cartoon animals in like period attire (laughs) so thank you for keeping me grounded and on task (laughs) you are welcome are there easter eggs of cartoon cats in attire somewhere in that map there are there are very opinionated quetzals that are not are not happy if you do not listen to them oh yes (laughs) oh my goodness i love that I love collaborating stories because you find out so, so much. How was it to move from being a couple to being a creative couple? Easy transition, weird bumpy transition, because it it adds a whole different vibe living in the same house and, Mm -hmm. you know, potentially never getting away from the work. Because like you said, you could just bust in in the middle of something and go, I have an idea. We're going to rewrite stuff now. Yep. <laughs> that was exactly what happened. Like, gee, I sure hope when you say you have an idea, it's what to, it's what to make for dinner and not another rewrite. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the the fun part is that you because you had some previous experience in theater choreography, right? Mm-hmm. So we choreographed these uh, a lot of these fight scenes in like quarter time, of course. But 
that was a lot of where we started is like we have we have these two characters who use canes we have our our own disabilities that don't exactly match these characters but they they have a lot in common with these characters so like a lot of the collaboration process was partly plotting and partly like okay we know these fight scenes are going to take us a while to do so like blocking these out that would be like our our like our weekend afternoon would be like on this old mattress with like our our canes figuring out how to do this yes i'm so glad you took the safety precaution of a mat like a mattress yes. to do that we, we did still get hurt I, but... no, I did. <laughs> not I, not too badly yeah um. I, I mildly bruised a rib during this process and oh i it was he Oops. told me don't do it don't do it and i'm like he's the theater choreographer i should listen to him i'm like i've done theater choreography too yeah it was irish dance that was the theater choreography i did so i should have listened to him and i was trying to do that one of the moves that that val does i should not have done it but yeah there were mattresses underneath he was the one who was constantly slowing us down and being like when you choreograph you don't you 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 go slower than you want to go like we need to go like painfully slowly to figure out how this how this actually works before you build it up. Yep. Yep. Was it just the canes or maneuvering the knives as well? Because Val does amazing things, slipping knives out of her hair, out of her cloaks, from here and there and Oh, those were letter openers. Safety yes. first. <laughs> no no real knives were harmed in the in the plotting of this novel. <laughs> Most authors I talk to use action figures, so I, I love the fact that you were committed enough to do, like, live choreography. I mean, I, I would say we had to. We didn't have to. But it really did help to, you know, have have done all of that. And I still found, as I was writing stuff, I would try to, like, act things out so that I could know what to write. Yeah, it was very helpful. We also used stuffed animals. When there, when there weren't enough of us, we were like, okay, we got... <laughs> We got this thing and that and that, that. yep, okay. Yes. And yes, the, good the, like, the stuffed animals, I just got really attached to them, so they were there unnecessarily sometimes during the plotting process. Like when we weren't doing a fight scene, we would just be doing an interpersonal scene. I would have like this little rabbit puppet who would act surprised when like he confesses something. Yes. So it's you you find the fun in it, especially especially with stuff that like there are with with a novel that talks so much about identity and so much about people's hearts, like finding the fun in the process helps you build in the comedic moments in the novel itself. Because mm -hmm. I, I think like you need you need some comedy on the page, especially when you have when you have fight scenes, when you have when you have people who are just like going deep into their hearts to figure out who they are. Mm -hmm. The the identity scenes, the fight scenes, the we need to fix our kingdom. I mean, there's a heavy need here that has to get taken care of apart from all the other stuff going on. So I very much appreciated the humor when it cropped up and I ended up just laughing out loud occasionally. Like, And I have to admit, I don't read a lot of fantasy because world building kind of can bog me down. It's like I'm finding out too much. And it, so I appreciated how you kind of parsed that out, giving me what I needed when I needed it. But on top of it all, were these amazing characters. And I come back again to those first couple of chapters, like how can I not read these two people? And then you keep finding out as they reveal more and more of themselves, either through their internal monologue or what they do actually tell the world. And I have to say the internal monologue in this book blew my mind because both of these characters are constantly like, 
heavy thinking about what they're doing. Should they be doing it? Should they be interacting with this other person? What's the fate of the kingdom? Again, I come back to the balance of it all, which is, is, is pretty amazing, but where are the actual questions going? <laughs> the identity here, I feel like anybody who picks up this book, no matter who they are, they're going to find a sliver of themselves on the page because these characters carry so much. Was that the intention all along? Or was it more, as you initially described, just characters that also mirrored yourselves? Hmm. I know that's a, yeah, that's a chin-scratching question. Yeah. Um, I hope in a good way. In a good way. Because <laughs> a lot of this book is about, is about intersectional identity and how do the different pieces of you come together? Because like, well, all of us have identities that intersect. Like different different parts of our ourselves come up against each other. Different part of our of our worlds come up against each other, and these characters' identities. I I think of them as so part of who they are that everything else sort of came from that. It may not be like on their mind all the time. Like I don't I don't go around thinking about how how gay I am. Like some days, but not all days. <laughs> and it's just where your where your heart is sort of based and what is what is coming together i think of i'm thinking of things coming together also because one of the one of the people that we worked with was national book award winner william alexander who was consulting about disability and val's val's disability has to do has to do with the spine and Will was saying, like, you know, this is the point that, like, this point in your lower spine is the place that, like, all, it's the hinge that all movement in your body, like, goes through. So this idea of, like, Val is dealing with this one hinge that everything goes through, that's not really, that's not really cooperating some of the time. That's, it's a little bit also what happens with like your, all of your identities coming to, like coming together in the central point of intersection. Sometimes it's going to be wonderful and sometimes it's going to be like, okay, how do I, how do I exist today? Like, how do I go forward? And I'd, I'd love to hear what you, how that was for you with Kate, especially because like the, the responsibilities of, and what that related to with his identity. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think with Kay, there's a there's a big issue of stealthness, which is you know kind of necessary given what's going on. But it also wasn't entirely his decision. So you know he's he, dealing with the impacts of that on his current life when it was kind of done for him in a lot of ways. So you know figuring all of that out, and in terms of I guess intersectional identity and trying to make that relatable. I mean that's. Super important because I, I feel like one of the one of the criticisms that comes up a lot is that characters who have too much <laughs> too much in terms of identity are not relatable. So you know some some extra effort definitely went into that, and I'm I'm hoping that that you know makes it so that even if you don't have much in common with these characters, you can still connect with them. I, I would say that was part part of the goal. Yeah, absolutely. Because I I couldn't help but feel like I guess I'll go with the word impressed with the level of grit and effort each of them would put through to get to their goal, even as their body is rebelling against them. It's like the thing that I'm trying to do is that important that I can't just stop. But I'll say the other thing too, and hopefully this isn't too much of a spoiler and you tell me if it is, then I'll take it out of the podcast. <laughs> the care they end up showing to each other because there are times when they're in distinct adversarial modes, but they know enough about each other to, I see how he's leaning on the cane. I see how this person's leaning this way or 
guarding this part of them and then not taking advantage of it because, which is just a beautiful part of the love story to me between these two. So I really love how you took care of that part too. Because uh, I'm just like, I don't know whether I'm like going, oh, please be careful or, oh, that is so sweet that you're feeling that way about them while all this other stuff's happening. <laughs> it was a big ball of emotions for me. And how you balanced all that I thought was just amazing. Oh, thank you. There's thank there's you. definitely a code between these characters. Yeah. There's, a, there's a sense that like I'm, I, I know enough about what your experience is to not want to take advantage of it. And also, I'm pretty sure I'm going to win against you anyway, so I don't need to take advantage of it. Like, I'll, I'll figure it out. Yep, yep, yep. And I have to say, I am butchering pronouns, and I apologize for that as I'm navigating between Valencia and, and, and Cade. I should just be using their names because I try to be respectful of those pronouns, and in the moment, I'm, I think I'm messing those up. I... I actually struggle a little bit talking about Val because Kate, like Kate, is he all the time? Val sort of goes between goes between he and she. Probably would at least at times like like the pronouns they and them, but this is not this is not a world that yet commonly uses those pronouns. Mm -hmm. So this is something I've I've thought about too in talking about Val. Okay, I, I feel less bad. <laughs> I'm at least kind of navigating the same things that you are, and you created them. I'm curious for you, Elliot, because this is a first, many firsts. Was fiction on your radar as something you wanted to maybe pursue in a, in a, as a publishing kind of pursuit? I did not think I could write a whole book or any portion of like a book thing. Most of my fiction-related experience was playwriting and, you know, that theatrical side of things, which I tremendously enjoyed and had a great time doing, but did not think was going to be anything resembling a career. And I, I was surprised when I was writing that I could write that much. <laughs> I was like, oh, hey, words, great. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a, a, a positive surprise that, you know, that, that could happen. And I, I do think the pandemic had something to do with it, because that happened like partway through, we, we had already started, but, you know, we, we did... I would say the bulk of this during the pandemic. So there was kind of more time to do that time that otherwise would have been occupied by, I don't know, going to grocery stores and stuff. Um, so, you know, that was certainly helpful. Um, definitely, you know, gave some, some space and time to the writing, um, which I appreciated. Yeah, we're, we're definitely both one. We're pre-pandemic. We're wanderers in stores. Like, like I, you, you'll never find me in the Target. Like once, like once I go in, I'm never gonna come out. And then, and yeah. then he's right. Like we would just go in really fast and come out really fast. And he would go to work. I would do my work. And then the rest of the time, we were, we were involved in this world. Yeah. Sounds like a lovely pandemic distraction to be involved oh, yeah. in this world instead of what we were doing here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it, was an, it was an interesting way to sort of like transmute, because the, the feelings aren't going away. Like the fear, the grief, is not, it's not going away. So to sort of have a place where some of that exists, but there's also, it's also a completely different world. I think there was something, there, there was something like heartening about that. Mm -hmm. And moving from playwriting to this kind of fiction was there anything about that transition that like surprised you or was like oh wow that 
<laughs> I mean, description in a nutshell, because I <laughs> didn't really need to do any of that. So, you know, that, that took some practice. AM is is the, the master of description. So, you know, uh, I, I, I learned a thing or two from your editing of my, of my initial efforts. There were definitely some points where you were like, this is too much and this is not enough. So, you know, I had to find a balance there. But yeah, it... I think it, it took some practice and, and it got somewhere eventually, but it was fun. It was a fun journey of learning how to describe things. Nice. Yeah, there's a big difference, I guess, between that and stage direction. <laughs> Italics. Things move this way. Done. <laughs> so one of my favorite questions to ask, and tonight there's two different ways I can ask it, depending on how you want to answer it. I want to know about favorite scenes. And it can either be favorite scene that you wrote individually or favorite scene that the other wrote. Okay. So, we, I, I think this might, because I think it crosses point of view, so I think it's kind of both. We, we have a, a part where, where there's dancing, which I love dancing. So, yeah, that transitions because Cade and Valencia recognize each other and sort of place each other as, you know, playing these multiple roles. And it dawns on them as they are dancing with one another. So then, of course, they take it outside and start fighting. As one does. As one does. (laughs) And it's great. So, yeah, that's probably my favorite. I'm cheating slightly. I think it's technically two scenes. So, yeah, yeah, there you go. Uh, (laughs) I love that one, too. I also, I I love a lot of our fight scenes that that are way up there for me. But since I've already, I've already talked a lot about our fight scenes, I'm, I have one other one that's that's coming to mind. I love the scenes that are at the monastery that Cade grew up in. The monastery full. Of, this is a monastery full of trans and non-binary guys. So there's a scene that I think is from Val's point of view, but that basically all, basically all of the dialogue except Val's was was him. Like this happens some this happens sometimes where we're writing our own points of view, but the like the other person is is contributing the dialogue of a lot of different characters. So he's basically being an entire monastery, and I'm being one character. <laughs> so there's this point where Val is like Val is dressed as a guy, and does, Val does not yet realize what exactly goes on at this monastery. And one of the one of the monks is saying is is saying like you know you could improve that outfit and I was like well, screw you I didn't ask you but if I had asked you what would you do <laughs> so this idea of trans and non-binary guys of of trans of trans people of queer people like helping each other and this sense of community like I recognize you I know you we have this in common we are family even though we just met that's something that that's something that means a lot to me that idea of that idea of of found family coming in there what do you hope people take away from this book well I mean I, I think one of the one of the big things that this hopefully conveys is that you know regardless of your various complicated things that you come from and who you are, and regardless of your ability, you can still be a total badass. So, yeah, there's that. So, actually kind of related kind of related to that, the squishier side of that. This is what he does. He's very concise and then I'm like, "And more feelings. Whoever you are, there are people, there are people like you and there are people who get you." And that's the people who who get you. Some of them are going to be like you, some of them are not, but there are you you can find family like you have you can make family you can make community there are people who are going to love you and that's that's something that i i really want readers to take away from this book fantastic and i think they'll take away both 
because it's, it's just that good. I have to have my own fanboy moment now and, and talk about self-made boys for just a brief moment. This was Anna Marie's book from last year that is a great Gatsby retelling. And f- for me, greatly improved on the source material. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently I'm not alone with that. Just one question, because I'll make you encapsulate the entire book in just with just one answer. How did you do that? <laughs> I mean, really to take the bones of that book and recast it the way you did it just was mind-blowing to me. It's like, I wish I had, could have read that in high school instead of the original because it just, it spoke so much more to me and I feel like really cast the story in such an amazing way while also kind of keeping at least true to the bones. So a couple of things that come to mind about this. One, I, I did want to keep the sort of basic framework of The Great Gatsby with a happier ending. I don't mind that. I, I don't mind saying that spoiler. It needed a different ending. But when when Emily Settle at Firewall and Friends came to me and said, we're doing this remix classic series, we want you to do The Great Gatsby, I was at a point very early on in my trans non-binary like journey. But Emily like says this and I'm like, yes, I am the man for this job. Girl, I mean girl, I'm the girl for this job. <laughs> So immediately I knew what I wanted to do. I knew that, oh, well, one, Gatsby and Nick, I just, it's, it's there. Like he talks about how beautiful Gatsby is. And also if you watch some of the film adaptations of like 1970 version with Robert Redford and Sam Waterstone, watch very carefully. They, they're building it right in. Robert Redford is staring at Sam Waterstone's ass at some point in that movie. <laughs> it was obvious to me and it was obvious to a lot of other readers that was part of the fun of writing this book. I also wanted to write Gatsby as trans and I wanted to write Nick as trans as this idea of like self-made boys, which is is true in some sense, like they are making themselves, but also not true in another sense because you need other people to help you, like to help you become who you are in the, in the same way in Venom and Vow at the monastery. So I wanted to write Nick as this Latino boy from, from the Midwest coming from this family who supports supports him as a trans boy and who's like yes we get you wait now you want to now you want to go to a city that none of us have ever been to like you've you've established your identity here and now you want to do what so i wanted to write nick as this as this math genius who has this chance to like to be this an, this analyst on wall street before like before quant is a word that's used on wall street and who goes there partially from the convincing of his cousin Daisy, who I wrote as like, as, like a, a lesbian Latina socialite who's passing as white. One of, my, one of my favorite books in the world is Passing by Nella Larson. Please read it if you haven't. I, I want it in every curriculum. Like why, why, did I, why did I read Passing Once? Why was I only assigned Passing Once and I was assigned Huck Finn three times? Why? I want everyone to read Passing. It is an absolutely spectacular book. And whenever I thought about writing 1920s, I thought I, I need to do some kind of tribute to Passing in there just because of what this book did for me and what it meant to me to read Passing alongside The Great Gatsby. Because there's, there's a lot of racism in the original and having, having that book alongside, it was just, I needed it. Like it, my reading experience would not have been the same. I'm very grateful to the teacher who assigned it. So having Daisy as this, as this like 
Latina girl who's passing as white and who doesn't really realize how much she's stepping on her cousin, who she's kind of disowned to do this, how she doesn't, like, in that way, she's kind of like Daisy in the original Great Gatsby, where she's she's just kind of like frothing about, not realizing that she's like breaking things everywhere. So Gatsby to me was also always going to be a trans guy. And the thing that surprised me was how many other people had seen that, how many other readers had seen that coding in there of like how hard he's working to be who he is, all of that effort that's in there. So. I wanted to write a story that was in the same time period, that had a lot of the same bones, but that the, the why was going to be different, the why these characters do what they do, the lives that they have that, that are off the page. And to actually like use, like use Nick's cluelessness in a way that was a little bit endearing, like I'm like not, like not totally understanding what's going on, even as he's a very sharp observer. So that's my, like, that's my very long answer of like, the Great Gatsby was always gay and it was always trans. <laughs> so it, it meant so much to me to be able to do this and to be able to kind of like make it as blatantly queer as I always thought it was. Yeah, just ugh, so good. Did you write, because of course books come out at various times, did you go from writing self-made into Venom and Vow? I think it was sort of alternating because of how the process uh, went. So I think that the earlier drafting process was first, and then I was sort of going into the research process for self-made boys. So they were very, very different, which I think was good because it's not like you're it's not like you're mixing up characters or anything. Like the textures were very different, the feels of the words, the worlds, but they were also they're like historical and historical-ish in the face of, in the case of Venom and Vow. So they were, they were different enough that it didn't like, it didn't mess up my brain too much, which I, which I really appreciated. We didn't, so I didn't end up with like Quetzal's flying through Gatsby's <laughs> mansion or anything like that. I would love to read that bonus chapter. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions from, from the audience that we can have these two answer? The first question is for Anna Marie. A lot of your characters in this book and other books that you've written have Latinx background, and you yourself have a Latinx background. How much of yourself and your background go into these characters? So for me, a lot of it is about writing, like writing the, the characters as they as they come to me, and I think I more naturally gravitate toward like writing characters who are like me, writing characters who come from from the kinds of communities I come from. It's, it looks a little bit different in every in every book. It's it's obviously a lot more fantasy based in in Venom and Vow. So that was something that once I once I did that once I thought once I didn't keep giving myself the okay I have to I have to justify why this character is is Latin. Um, it really opened up like my writing brain a lot more because earlier on in my first couple of novels I like I it was it was almost like I I had to get my like I had to get the like the Latin identity greenlit in my brain like I had to make a case for it because I thought okay this it is there something is there something about this that I'm not allowed to like put on the page because I didn't see many stories like this growing up and that was that was a lot that was a lot in my head. I had very supportive people around me, so it was more getting to the point of like it's okay if like my first 
my first instinct is to make is to make a character from like a Latin background. Like that is the background I come from. That is the reference point that I come from. And the next question is, are you working on another book together? It's simmering. Yes, yes. There might be some writing of some words that might or might not make sense being done by me. Um. <laughs> I know what I'm, he's, he's writing out of order. I've gotten to him. Yep, yep, yep. Fun oh, times. That's a skill. I can't do that at all. We didn't do that on this. We didn't do that on this book. I, don't I did. You did? Okay. <gasps> the secrets I'm <Ooh>. discovering. <laughs> not like a lot, just a little. <laughs> So it's simmering. It's yes. a it's a many spreadsheet book. I yeah. think. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. It's complicated. Probably too complicated at this point. So, yeah. Yeah. Simplification needed. Do you anticipate anything that you would write solo? Maybe I might. I might have an idea. Maybe possibly. Hmm. We shall see. And Anna Marie, what's coming up next for you? Anything we should be on the lookout for? So in spring of 2024, I have a YA novel coming out. I don't know if I'm allowed to tell the title yet, so I'll just tell you it's it's sparkly horror, very very okay. sparkly horror. I went a little bit into like into horror in Dark and Deepest Red in 2000 in 2020, which was about the 1518 Strasbourg Dancing Plague. I'm excited to go deeper into it and do something that's that has some horror tropes, but that's but that's also very very queer, very Latin. So I'm excited about working on that. In fall 2024, my first adult book is coming out called The Influencers, which I can I can best describe as knives out on Instagram. Wow. <laughs> that sounds like fun. Can I pre-order it now? <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Because I kind of jumped back in there with a couple. This question's for Anna Marie. Magical realism was a feature of your early work. Are you moving away from that or just exploring more things or also still weaving that in? I think it's always going to be like part of part of my literary heart. I think something that I'm that I'm excited to do right now is just sort of do things that are really different. Obviously, like I've I haven't I've done some fantasy. I haven't done really really like high fantasy like this. I'm excited to do to go deeper into horror. The influencers is like it's it's like all social media and murder mystery and I've like I've never had like a cell phone in any of my novels. So this is <laughs> I'm just doing I'm I'm just doing like a bunch of different things that I want to do and I probably will come back to magical realism at some point. It's still in the short stories that I write for fantasies a lot. So it's sort of like the the natural point that I come to. I'm just I'm excited to do like just kind of as different things as I can do right now. The next question is what are you reading right now? Oh hooray. You took my copy of A Clash of Steel. I see you're I tearing through it. I am. A Clash of Steel is part of the Remix Classics series, which is uh, also what Self-Made Boys is part of. So that whole adventure was basically asking super cool people to rewrite stories that are traditional classics. So this one's Treasure Island, and it's awesome. Yeah, by C.B. Lee. It's, yes. it's great. So good. Yeah, yeah. So I'm having a great time with that. I'm like about halfway through, I think. So yes, that is my... That's my fun thing I'm reading, in addition to small piles of nonfiction, which are less fun. Still fun, but less fun. So. I'm reading T.J. Clune's uh, latest release, In the Lives of Puppets, which yeah. is in the front window. Yeah. And just, like, it's just as, just as, like, 
heart like heart grabbing and also hilarious as you would expect like and tj was telling me about people like bringing their roombas to be signed <laughs> at book events i'm like that's a great idea because this like this poor little roomba who just wants to be loved in this book this question's for elliot you said you had a background in musical theater and playwriting what was transitioning to this type of writing like what was the biggest challenge and what was the easiest thing to transfer I mean, the to answer the easier one first, the the easiest part was probably dialogue. Yeah, I, I I think we also we had some fun times doing like practice dialogue for other stuff that you eventually wrote, just to kind of you know get get things in the brains. So yes, dialogue, tons of fun. That was good practice, and I I think probably m- making things a bit more cohesive rather than like in the world of playwriting, you can do some pretty crazy transitions and, and just like drop things and be like, ah, whatever, and move on to something else, <laughs> something more interesting to see on a stage. Having having some sense of cohesion from scene to scene was, yeah, that was that 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 was a bit tricky to kind of, you know, have that have a logical flow of some kind. Yes. <laughs> yes. And the last question is, what were the easiest things about writing this book? And what were the hardest? I think some of the I'll what immediately came to mind about the hardest parts is I think whatever, like whatever you're you're working on, like whether it's whether it's fiction or nonfiction, whether it's whether it's fantasy or an academic paper, whether it's a whether it's like a tricky email, there's always one point where you're like everything else is coming together and it's this one thing. I remember that we had a couple of those plot points where it's like this is such a small thing. Why is this the one that's hard to solve? But just like slotting those things together and just like not giving your brain a break and thinking like, I just need to, I need to walk away from this and just come back to it. That's what came to mind in terms of hardest. Like, is there, and I think that's, you're echoing that. What was, what was easiest? Am I giving you the easier question or the harder question? I mean, one of, one of the things that also came to mind as difficult is I, I rewrote the ending, like, I don't know, 12 times. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and was so hard. Yeah, uh, I, I'm not quite sure why, but it was it was really really tough to get the ending right because you know I would do it and I would be like it's okay, and then I'd have to do it again. So yeah, that was tough. I think some of the some of the like fight choreography and actiony sequences those were certainly more fun and therefore I think felt easier and went faster because you know you got people doing stuff and limbs everywhere and it's great so yeah there's there's plenty going on so yeah that that probably felt easiest I think for me one of the easiest parts I was just thinking of this because he said he rewrote the ending 12 times I'm like oh yeah you did didn't you <laughs> that Having some things in a novel be someone else's problem was really nice. <laughs> it was just like, you know what? I'm sure you'll figure it out, and it's going to be great. <laughs> Anna Marie and Elliot, thank you so much for a great conversation. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, everyone, for being here. This episode's transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the conversation for yourself, head on over to the show notes page for this episode at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. We've got links to absolutely everything that we have talked about in this episode. And as a quick reminder, if you want to get book recommendations delivered to your inbox every single Friday, you can sign up for the Rainbow Romance Reader Report, this podcast's official newsletter. We feature new releases and upcoming books to help keep your TBR healthy and up to date. 
You can sign up at biggayfictionpodcast.com slash report. That was such a wonderful evening. Thanks again to Anna Marie, Elliot, and Capital Books. I have to say I loved hearing about the fight choreography that they did with mattresses for padding and stuffed animals for extras. As they were telling that story, I kind of imagined us trying to do that thing and it just not ending well because we are not the most graceful people to be doing fight choreography. <laughs> anyway, and I'm glad we got just a little bit of time in on self-made boys too with how Anna Marie made their decisions on that Gatsby remix. It was so good. All right, I think that'll do it for now. Coming up next Monday, we welcome another married couple as we kick off Pride Month with husbands and authors, Stephen Rowley and Byron Lane. Yes, Stephen, who you all may recall, wrote one of our favorite books of 2021, The Gunkle, has a new book out called The Celebrants, and Byron also has a new book, very aptly titled for this show, Big Gay Wedding. We'll talk to them about those books and about their life as a creative couple. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you'll join us again soon. Until then, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Original theme music by Daryl Banner. 